So we've been looking in depth at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. But today, we're actually going to take a little detour from that series. Uh, when we're planning out a series, a series especially that's, that's spanning many months, um, we, we realize that sometimes there might be things that happen in our culture, in our world, um, maybe even in our own church that, that need to be addressed. Now, no such thing has happened and, and the reason we set these, these times aside is to adjust the sermon series in case we need to talk about those things, and nothing's really going on. So that means today is a sermon that is one I got to pick. I just got to pick. Open the Bible, point, that's where we're going. I'm kidding. I didn't do that. I prayed through what we were talking about this morning. But needless to say, uh, we are not technically in the series Words from the Hill. We're taking a brief detour. Now, the sermon that I did pick has a lot to do with where I'm at in my own life and in the stage uh, that, that I'm at. You may have noticed that there was reference to children, and there's lots of that happening in my life. Um, and, and another part of that also has to do with the fact that, that even though we are taking a somewhat of a detour, uh, this is still from the book of Matthew, and a lot of the things that we've talked about in the Beatitudes are very similar to what we're talking about this morning. So, let's get this out of the way. I'm in this season of life, and you may have noticed it because every time I preach, I tend to talk about my children. That's because that's all I know. Everywhere I turn, they're there. Everywhere I look, they're there. And they won't stop being there for a long time. And I'll be honest. Children scare me to death. <laughs> for the longest time, I've been scared to death of children. And, and then I had my own. And it didn't change. They're tiny little humans. And they ask the most daunting questions. My daughter's favorite question right now is what? 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 Even though I know she hears every word I say, what? And just a few months ago, it was why, Dad? Why? 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 I don't know, Lily. I don't know. These questions. And, and as a youth pastor, there's this one question. I know I get the call. When, when the child hits around eight or nine years old, I get this call hey, can we bring our kid in to come and talk to you? He has some questions that we just don't know how to answer as parents. I'm like, reluctantly, yes. Because I know what's coming. That question. I can't see God, so how do I know he's there? Or the, the, the biggest one of all. I'm even scared just saying it. Who created God? And I'm like, oh, um, how do I take something that I don't even know myself and explain it to an eight and nine-year-old? Parenting is difficult because kids, they have these daunting questions that, that arrive. And my daughter's only two years old. She's soon to be three. And she's got these crazy questions. But the children, children are also pretty awesome and cool in some, some ways. 
actually didn't mean to say it that way, but I guess it's true. My son Owen is enthralled with his hands. Just look at him. When was the last? Just, just put him up, everybody. Just put your hands up and be like, isn't that cool? I mean, move your thumb. You're thinking about it and you're like, oh, I'm doing that. It's cool. My son Judah, his, his worldview is food. That's all it is. I thought that happened when you were a teenager. But no, he's one and a half years old, and all he cares about is food. We actually were, were, we were playing, we thought we'd be funny yesterday, and we wanted to give him a dill pickle. Because, you know, anything he plays before him, he's like, ah, in his mouth. And for her daughter, Lily, whenever she would have a lemon or a pickle or something, she would do this face like, ugh. And it's always funny, you know, really funny to watch this. So we get the video camera out. We're like ready to record this. We want, to, we, want to, we want everyone to see how hilarious this is. And Judah, this is the first time he's had dill pickle. He reaches across, he picks it up, puts it in his mouth, and he's just like, whatever, man. This is food. And just give me more. <laughs> and he just keeps popping it in his mouth. It's gross. Well, I like pickles, but you know. Their worldviews are so simple. Life is such a simple thing. It's not a big deal for them to ask questions that they don't know answers to. How many of us are willing to do that? We're so afraid to go to someone and ask a question that we don't know an answer to because we're afraid we'll come across as stupid or not smart. Children have this, this way of just coming across as, as, as well, one, one way frightening to me, but also so incredible. They're so complex, yet they're so simple. They only care about themselves, but yet they know who to go to for the things that they need. It's quite different from the place the disciples were at as they were entering the city of Capernaum. In Matthew 18, where we find our passage today, the, the words that Jesus that we're looking at this morning are, are found in the book of Matthew, but not just Matthew, they're found in, in the book of Mark and Luke as well. This is a story that of, of some great importance because it spans more than just one gospel. So we should heed the words that, that, that Jesus is saying, but also realize there's a situation happening here. We begin with the disciples asking Jesus this astounding question. Who will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now in the gospel of Mark, we actually find that it wasn't so much of a question as it was an argument they were having. Who was the greatest or who will be the greatest in, in the coming kingdom? They were arguing over which one of them will be the greatest. Now this shouldn't be anything new for us. We hear it all the time. You turn on the media, you turn on the news, and, and someone is always proclaiming to be the best, the greatest, and, and the most important person. Just watch this video. Knocks out everybody, and no one can whoop him. That's when that little Cassius Clay from Louisville, Kentucky, came up and stopped Sonny Liston, the man who annihilated Floyd Patterson twice. He was going to kill me. But he hit harder than George. His reach is longer than George. He's a better boxer than George. And I'm better now than I was when you saw that 22-year-old undeveloped kid running from Sunday Liston. 
I'm experienced now, professional. Jaws been broke, been lost, knocked down a couple of times. Bad. Been chopping trees. I done something new for this fight. I done wrestled with an alligator. That's right. I have wrestled with an alligator. I done tussled with a whale. I done handcuffed lightning, throw thunder in jail. That's bad. Only last week, I murdered a rock, injured a stone, hospitalized a brick. I'm so mean, I make medicine sick. Bad dude. Bad. Fast. 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 Last night, I cut the light off my bedroom, hit the switch, was in the bed before the room was dark. Incredible. Fast. Incredible. And you, George Fullman, all of you chumps are going to bow when I whoop him. All of you. I know you got him. I know you got him picked, but the man's in trouble. I'm going to show you how great I am. Much like Muhammad Ali, which, man, he has a way with words, does he not? Much like Muhammad Ali, these disciples, they're arguing over who's going to be the greatest. I'm sure Peter was like, oh yeah, well, I wrestled an alligator. And James is like, oh yeah, well, I put lightning in jail. Probably not. That was more for comedic purposes. Somehow along their journey with Jesus over these two years, they forgot what drew them to Jesus Christ in the first place. They forgot that they had abandoned everything this is, that this world had to offer them to follow Christ. And they sought after greatness that this world just placed before them. They forgot Jesus' words from Matthew eleven eleven, where he said, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist makes a pretty bold claim there of who's the greatest, but then he goes on to say this, yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And so Jesus, he responds to their argument. He responds to this question with an, with an even more astounding answer. He gets a child and he brings the child in front of them. Now, in, in the book of Mark, we actually see that Jesus, in, in, his, in his tenderness, in his care, doesn't just bring the child before them, but he actually picks the child up and holds the child. I think this, is, this shows a little bit of who Jesus is in his character, because no rabbi would give a child any attention. No teacher of the law would give a child any, any dignity or purpose. So he picks up this child and he says this in Matthew 18, verse 3 and 4. I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever, and if you guys like to write in your Bible, this will be the time to get out your pen and underline maybe like four times this one word. Therefore, whoever humbles himself, like this child, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I am sure there are many of you parents in here who are probably thinking to yourself, my child and humble? What? That does not make any sense. Because humility is not my child. Now, 
to better understand what Jesus is talking about here, to better understand what, what he's getting at, we need to take ourselves out of the context of our day and place ourselves in the context of his day and see exactly what is happening. Because in Jesus' time, a child's value was found pretty much only in the benefits that they brought to the family. They were understood as property. They had no rights were a means of labor for the family business and had worth based upon their ability to continue the future legacy of that family. One commentator said it this way. He said, In the ancient world, children were valued primarily for the benefit that they brought to the family by enhancing the workforce, adding to the defensive power, and guaranteeing the future glory of the house. But they had no rights or significance apart from their future value to the family. And we're powerless. Keyword being powerless in society. That means if you were a boy, you honestly had more worth than a girl. Females, they were seen more as a future transaction to be had, as opposed to a future legacy, a future transaction. Because for 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 females, if you were there, you were more going to be sent away to be married to someone. And so the father would say, all right, well, my daughter's worth five goats, four sheep, and two camels. There was a price tag. And I don't want us to get this picture of like, oh, they were horrible people back then looking at children that way. How dare they? This was their culture. This was their society. This is what they saw. They saw children as an investment for the future. And like most investments, they aren't much now, but in the future, they will come back to pay big. So right now, it's not worth that much. So how can someone be great if they have no value right now? So... If we put ourselves in, that sh- in, in the disciples' shoes, as, as Jesus brings this child out and says, in order to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, you have to be humble like this child. Can you imagine what they're thinking? What? This is wrong. This is backwards. This is not greatness. This is, this is the opposite of greatness. They saw the humility of the child was based in the fact that the child depended on everything from their children, I mean, from their parents. The only thing they got, the only thing they knew they could do is, is go to their parents. And all of us at some point recognize that. Even though we'll fight tooth and nail as teenagers to say, I am, I'm my own person, I want to do my own thing, we still understand the realization that we go to our parents usually for food, that we go to them for shelter, oftentimes for money, We depend on our parents, and it was no different back in this time. In the same way, Jesus calls us, not just as his disciples here, but us as his disciples today, to be like children, to humble ourselves and admit that we depend on our heavenly parent for everything. And I just love what is happening here in this, this glimpse from Matthew, this glimpse into Jesus' ministry. You see, prior to this argument that the disciples were having, 
They were entering Capernaum. And Jesus was, was, was come at with this question, kind of a question to catch him. Do you pay the temple tax? Now, Peter spoke up for Jesus because, you know, Peter, he likes to get ahead of things. And he said, yes, Jesus pays the temple tax. Now, later, Jesus reminds him, I am the son of God. So there's no need for me to pay the temple tax because the son of a king doesn't pay taxes. It is only his subjects that pay taxes. So he's saying that I don't really have to pay the temple tax. However, because you said you would and not to offend, we're going to pay this temple tax. So he tells Peter, who's a fisherman, go, catch me a fish. First fish you catch, open its mouth and you will pull out money. And not just money, but you will pull out exact, the exact amount of money that you need to pay for your temple tax and my temple tax. That, my friends, is greatness. That Jesus can perform a miracle when he's not even there. Before that happens, Jesus' disciples, they're, they're trying to heal this boy who is possessed by a demon. They're trying to cast out the demon, but nothing's happening. So they go to Jesus and they say, Jesus, we just don't know how to do this. And so Jesus comes and he says, all right, demon, out. And the demon, boom, out. That is greatness. But even before that, in this story that, that Matthew is painting, Jesus is on this mountain and he's talking to Elijah and Moses, the patriarchs of the faith. And it's not just like these, these images of them. It is literally them. And Peter, James, and John are watching this take place. And not only are they watching him talk to, to these two men, but Jesus is glowing. He is glowing in this state. They're actually seeing him in the greatness that he will once be. And that he once was. In his most glorious state, they're seeing Jesus. Greatness. That is what Jesus is. That is what he summed up in his ministry. Yet listen to how Paul paints this picture of him in Philippians 2, 7, and 8. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death, on a cross. We have this man who is, who is like oozing greatness out of his life, yet this is how he chooses to show his greatness. Because Jesus understood something. Even though his life was showing greatness, his mission wasn't point to his own greatness. It wasn't about the world seeing how great he was. It was about pointing to the Father who sent him and his greatness. Because if Jesus was all about greatness, he would have opted for a castle instead of the rocks that he chose to lay his head on. If Jesus was all about greatness, he would have been eating with the rich and having magnificent feasts with those with a name instead of breaking bread with prostitutes, and tax collectors, 
and the scum of the earth. If Jesus was about greatness, he would have called upon his legions of angels to come and wipe out those who tried to kill him instead of going to the cross and dying for those that tried to kill him. He lived the very statement that he was about to proclaim in just a few chapters in Matthew 20, 16. So the last will be first, and the first will be last. You see, greatness according to the world, it says, look what I've done. Look, look what I can do. Look at me, I'm, I'm, I'm something pretty special. But humility, on the other hand, humility understands where greatness comes from and draws attention to the one who provides it all. So our tune changes for those of you who are grammar nuts in here, from the first person to the third person. Instead of saying, look what I've done, we say, look at what he's done. Instead of saying, look at what I can do, we say, look at what he can do. Instead of saying, I'm something pretty special, look at me, you say, he's something pretty special, look at him. Just as a child depends on their needs from parents, is that how you depend on your heavenly father? Do you strive to attain the kind of greatness that lifts you up and shows the world how wonderful you are? Or do you strive to, to show that greatness comes from the one who is in you? Are you willing or have you ever been, as Jesus put it, changed and become like a little child? We're not done yet. I have a little bit more that I want to talk about, but before we go into that, I want us to just pause there for a moment. I'm going to read these, these, these verses, the things that Je the two sentences that Jesus said to his disciples. I'm going to read them. And I, I would love for you to close your eyes. If you're about to fall asleep, don't do that. But I'd like for you to close your eyes and just hear what Jesus is saying. I tell you the truth. Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus continues. In verse 5, he says, And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, 
It would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. After there's talk about humility and it is those who seek dependence on God who will, who will be greatest in the, in the coming kingdom, Jesus' analogy of children now shifts. It shifts to a warning that we must realize there is a hefty amount of responsibility to those who have been given the duty to care for these little ones. This verse often can be taken out of context and it can be taken in ways, and we're going to talk about a few of those ways that, that we take, it's taken out of context, but one in particular I want to just begin addressing. Oftentimes we, we read this about, about those who lead a little one astray and we think of, of teachers in, in, in this section who are teaching and how the responsibility of teaching little ones and that we don't want to lead them astray or, or such as a youth pastor and how the youth pastor's responsibility is not to lead little ones astray, but I have to tell you, the ones who teach the most to children, the ones who give the most instruction to the little ones, are the ones that they are around the most. And that means it's parents, it's grandparents, it's family members. It means that there's a hefty responsibility not just on teachers of children and, and, and youth pastors and anyone who's, who's instructed to teach a child. It is everyone who is given the privilege to care for young ones. It's for everyone who's given the privilege to be looked up to, to be Respected. I remember when I was in sixth grade, I had just entered youth group. I was like, this is the greatest thing in the world. Youth group, I've been waiting for this for a long time. And there was this senior in high school, coolest dude I have ever known. His name was Brent Surgeon. And I wanted to be exactly like him. He, 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 I was wearing at this time white socks that came up to like right here. And he, he, he commented about them. He's like, man, you shouldn't be wearing socks like that. So guess what? Never, <laughs> never again, even to this day, I don't wear socks like that, even if they're cool. I even look at his life now, and I'm like, man, this guy, he is cool. I still want to be like him. I hope sometime he hears this, because he, he probably doesn't even know. All of you are influencing somebody. So when I read this verse, verse 6, but if anyone causes any one of these little ones to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. I don't like this verse. It is not my favorite verse in the Bible. And again, it can be quickly taken out of context because the truth is, it's inevitable. It's inevitable. Children will mimic their parents and children will adopt their sins and all. 
I remember I was changing Lily's diaper a while back, and I don't know if I've told this story in here or not. It's a great story, so I just tell it all the time. I was changing Lily's diaper a while back, and um, she was cleaned, and I was getting ready to put the diaper underneath her, and I said, all right, Lily, lift your butt up. But, 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 I'm not kidding. For five minutes, that's all she said. And I'm thinking like, oh my goodness, I, I, I'm, I'm this new youth pastor here and she's going to walk into the church. She's going to be like, but, 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 but. And they're like, what kind of youth pastor tells their kid the word but? And um, I mean, it could have been something much worse, right? But there's this thing. If any of you have, have children or who, who are talking now um, and you probably have come across this somewhere along the way where you said something and then they just start repeating that thing and you're like, oh, no. Again, it could have been much worse and I, I recognize that and I'm making a little light of this, but there, there is a truth that is underlying in, in what I'm talking about here. The truth is, it is inevitable that our children will pick up some of our sins and they will adopt them into their own lives. Because you can, I can look at my own life and I see the things that my dad struggled with and I see the things that are already a part of my own life because of that. And I'm going to get a little real here for a moment, so bear with me. There are girls in here who hate how they look in the mirror because they grew up seeing their mother talk about how much they hated what they were seeing in the mirror. There are young men in here who find satisfaction from pornography because their fathers hid behind, hid playboys in the back of their closets growing up. There are fathers who can't control their anger. Therefore, there are now fathers who can't control their anger. There are mothers who let worry rule their lives because they never saw their mother able to let go and just trust that God cares for their child much more than they ever could. I am not looking forward to seeing what my children are going to adopt from me. It is going to be ugly. And I'm going to own that and take that. I hate looking at areas where I'm not living out my faith in Christ and seeing the youth group adopt some of those areas themselves. I sometimes wonder and even wrestle with whether or not it would be better for me to wrap a millstone around my neck, stand at a cliff, jump into the water, and just drown because it would be better for them. But, and this is the good kind of but, now you can laugh. This is a good kind of but, the one that has one less T. But, then I'm reminded of the redemption of Jesus Christ. Jesus dying on the cross in his resurrection, it's more than just a change of my future destination. It's a change of the very life that I'm living right here and right now. With the belief of Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord, the Holy Spirit lives in me. He lives in you who believe and is changing us. He is morphing us into who we are to be. He's changing us, the very nature of who I was, into who he wants me to be. Women, you may look into the mirror and hate what you see. And you do that because you saw that from your mother. You may not even realize that's why you're doing it. But you are different now. 
When you look in the mirror, realize that Jesus Christ sees someone worth dying for. He sees beauty in the one he created and he spoke into existence. That is the legacy that you can pass on to your children. Men, your, your father may have lustfully sought pleasure from a naked woman on a page or on a screen, and you may too, but you are changed, and you are forgiven. Therefore, there is no shame when Jesus looks upon you. He sees you as, as pure and holy, It doesn't matter if the world looks at you with shame. Jesus now sees you in that light of forgiveness. And that is something worth passing on to the next generation. This is a legacy that we can pass on. In verse 5, when Jesus says, Whoever welcomes a little child welcomes me. We must realize what we are welcoming people into, what we are welcoming our, our children into. We are welcoming them into a legacy of transformation. We are welcoming them into a place where, where the sins that are passed down from generation to generation, they can actually be stopped. They don't have to rule our lives anymore. That there is forgiveness and redemption to be grasped and owned because Jesus gives it to us. And I'm going to be honest with you because the truth is it is inevitable. There are sins in my life that I know will pass on to my children. But my prayer is that the redemption speaks louder. That the hope speaks louder. That the forgiveness speaks louder than any sin that I could ever pass on. And my prayer is that there are some sins that just stop with me. And they will stop with me and my children can go on. And they can live without having to bear that weight or that guilt or that shame because of Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection. So parents, adults, People who have influence on others, which means everybody in this place. Don't live in fear that your sins and faults against Christ will be transformed into the transferred into the next generation. Instead, live with the hope that you are forgiven. Pass on that truth that God holds nothing against you because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And there is always time. There is always time to speak that redemption because it takes us back to the very thing that Jesus began in the first place. In order for us to recognize our faults, to ask forgiveness of those sins, to ask and seek out redemption, We have to humble ourselves like little children. As the worship team comes out, this is what I'll end with. 
for us to grab this responsibility that Jesus lays on us as his disciples. If we are to welcome little ones, therefore welcoming him into our life, instead of causing them to sin, we must become like little ones first. We must remove our pride, remove our desire for greatness in this world, and yearn for humility. We must humble ourselves and admit that we depend on God for everything in our life. We're about to sing a song called I Surrender All. This is a, this is a hymn that I remember singing growing up, and um, it's a hymn of great legacy. Here's my encouragement to you. We say the words, the phrase, I surrender all, several times. Don't make yourself a liar by saying these words and not doing it. Speak truth when you sing these words. And I encourage you, sing them with gusto. Sing them with all that's within you and surrender your lives to Jesus Christ because in that surrender, we have hope, we have redemption, and something worth passing on to the next generation. Would you, would you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you for this hope. Thank you for this, this redemption. Thank you for a story to tell the future generations so we can, we can see your grace and your mercy. Teach us to be like little ones. Humble ourselves. May we surrender our all to you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. And we all said, amen. amen. Would